I remember I was about six months into my deployment in the Middle East, and I was miserable, exhausted, to be honest, on the edge of burnout. I looked at my calendar, and I saw another four months to go, and I wasn't even sure I could make it another day. I remember one morning I woke up early, as usual, and I was complaining to God about my current circumstances. I was walking from my hooch, that's the barracks where you live as a soldier, to the nearby bathroom trailer, and on my walk, I said something like, God, I can't believe you brought me to this miserable place. Lord, to think right now, I could be back home in Stamford in my beautiful apartment with my beautiful wife enjoying a nice cold beverage. And yet, you have me here. I remember I continued to complain to God until I got to the bathroom trailer and I opened the door and I heard something odd, something that I hadn't heard in a long time. I heard the voices of Two men, and they were singing, but they were singing with such hope and joy. And they were singing in another language, but it was clearly a hymn. So I investigated to try to see who was singing this hymn with such hope. And much to my surprise, it was a couple of the foreign nationals hired for probably about a dollar a day to clean the dirty, nasty bathroom trailers on the army base. Now, I can hardly think of a job more miserable than cleaning up a bathroom trailer in Camp Arifjan, Kuwait, after a bunch of dirty, nasty soldiers. And yet, these two men were filled. They were filled with something that I hadn't had in a long time. They were filled with hope. And what I now realize is that God was revealing something deeper to me in that moment. And it's that I'm prone to wander and put my hope in things that don't don't last. But these men, they were revealing something else, that they had put their hope in something that could not be taken away. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning. But before we dive in, I want to give you some context. Uh, The book of Ezra was written at a very low point in the history of Judah. Now, about 50 years before this book was written, the Babylonian king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar had come through Judah and had sieged the capital city. You can read that really uplifting, enjoyable story about the siege in Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He's called that for good reason. After months of a hard-fought siege, the Babylonians break into Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar did what any ancient leader did after winning a hard-fought siege. He taught the people a lesson. He destroyed the city so that they could never be well defended again. He began by tearing down all the walls of Jerusalem so that they could not hold up and fight back. Then he continued by tearing down every single monument in the city 
And he finished with the temple, the literal presence of God. It was torn down and all the gold was taken away. And it was like at that moment, God's presence was gone from Israel. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't stop there. He took the Israelites back with him into Babylon. This is what we refer to in the biblical narrative as the exile. And now our story of Ezra picks up a few years later. Nebuchadnezzar is now dead and there's a new king reigning by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus has done something incredible. He's shown the people of Israel favor. He said to all of them, you can return to your homeland and you can rebuild your city. And what we're witnessing in our passage today is the rebuilding of the foundations of the Temple Mount. And what we're going to see specifically is this, that as Christians, we are not called to put our hope in the past. So let's take a look at that truth in the scripture beginning in verse 12. It says this, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. So the people, they arrive back in Jerusalem and they begin rebuilding the temple. And we see them lay the foundations of the future temple and there are two primary reactions in the text. The first one is of the old men and they weep. Now, why are they weeping? Well, it says right here in the text, they're weeping because they had seen the old house. They had seen the old temple in all its glory, in all its majesty, with all its gold. And now they see this new foundation being laid and they can't help but weep. Now, in this moment, I want us to recognize something. The temple not only represents the literal presence of God, but it represents something else. It represents a better past. It represents a time in the history of Judah when the people had freedom, when they had wealth, when they had power, and now all that is gone. And these old men, they look up and stare at this bare foundation on the Temple Mount and they can't help but weep. They can't help but weep because they're thinking about the good old days when everything was together in their nation. And many of us Christians, we do this same thing. We look back on the past and we exclaim, if only things could be the way they used to be. Things used to be so much better in our country. If only our nation was more unified and not so divided. If only we had community and we knew our neighbors and we cared for one another, then we would be okay. Now, there's a couple problems with doing this, with looking back to the past 
and putting our hope in the past. And the first problem is that when we look back at the past, we look at it through an unrealistic lens. Now, there's a perfectly scientific reason for this. There's actually a word to define this unrealistic yearning for a false past, and it's called nostalgia. And I love how Alan R. Hirsch, the author, defines nostalgia. He says, nostalgia is longing for a sanitized past. He goes on, rather than seeing the past for what it truly was, we recall it as a conglomeration of various memories, filtering out the negative ones to leave only the positive, which creates nostalgia. And we see this right here in our story. These old men, they long for the temple in all of its glory, in all of its beauty, with all of its gold, but they're forgetting some things. For example, they're forgetting how the temple was built. Solomon conscripted every single able-bodied man in Judah to build that temple. And Solomon had his foreman work those men to the bone. But these men, they looked to the temple and they've forgotten that. They've forgotten that the temple had all these beautiful gold adornments. But the reason the temple had so much gold is because King David fought and defeated many people and took from them their spoils. That gold was won with the blood of many Israelite men. But these men, they forget. They look back and they look back on this sanitized past. And they forget all the heartache and the pain. And this is the problem with nostalgia. It's an unrealistic view of the past, but we still do it. Many of us in this room, we even view the 1950s and 60s as somewhat of a golden age in our nation. You guys can admit it, that's okay. (laughs) A better time uh, when there was more community. And there's some truth in that. I'll give you that. I was doing some research this past week as I worked on this sermon, and I was reading some Gallup polls done in the 60s. And one poll really revealed something to me. Uh, A poll was done in 1965, and the American public was asked this question, can most people be trusted? 77% of Americans said yes. That's an incredible thought. Can you imagine if they did that today? It'd probably be less than 2% would say yes. There was more sense of community. People knew their neighbors and they often cared for them. And these are all good things about the past. But also during the 50s and 60s, we forget. We forget that they were hardly a golden age for people who were marginalized because of race or gender or social class. Segregation was the norm and took place by race legally in many places and took place by gender pretty much everywhere. Not only that, but we forget that 
our nation had yet to uncover a horrific rural poverty that was affecting people all over in many states. You see, we forget. We forget. And that's the problem with putting our hope in the past is that we forget that it was never as good as we really thought. We even do this with the church every once in a while. I'll hear something like, Pastor, I remember when we sang only hymns in church. Those were the good old days. Or, Pastor, I remember when there was a picture of the steeple on the bulletin. Man, those were the good old days when you had that steeple picture on the bulletin. Now, the truth is, church, there's never been a golden age. There's never been a golden age in our church, and there's never been a golden age in our nation, and there never will be until Jesus returns. Why? Because sin has broken every age. And this is why, as Christians, our hope is not in the past. Now, maybe you're still sitting there thinking, well, Pastor, you didn't grow up in the 50s or 60s. You don't know. It was really a lot better. And maybe you're right. Well, there's still another reason that we don't put our past, or our hope in the past, and it's simply this, that we ain't going back. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, church. Maybe I'm bursting some of your bubbles, but we ain't going back. That ship has sailed. That train has left the station. We are full steam ahead. And that's okay because as Christians, our hope is not back there. It's not back there. So at this point, you might be expecting the Bible to say something like, oh, just put your hope in the very moment and live every moment to its fullest. Put your hope in every present circumstance. And no, the Bible doesn't say that. That's actually Buddhism, if you were wondering. Because as Christians, we don't place our hope in our present circumstances either. We don't. Let's take a look at that in the scripture going on in verse 12. It says this. Though many shouted with joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of a joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and that sound was heard far away. So now we see the second response, the response of the young people. The younger generation, they shout with joy and they shout with joy for good reason. This is a big deal. It's been years since the Israelites have been back in Jerusalem and now they are rebuilding the city. And not only that, they're rebuilding the temple. This is something to celebrate. And they lay the foundations of the temple and in the midst of these incredible circumstances, the younger generation cannot help but shout with joy. They shout with joy in the moment. But notice what they're rejoicing in. They're rejoicing in this present circumstance how God has changed this present situation. 
And there's an issue with this. And we as Christians easily fall into this as well. I could stand here as your pastor and say, okay, church, just kick back in your pew and enjoy yourselves. Enjoy Stanwich Church the way it is right at this very moment. I mean, we got a pretty good thing going on, don't we? We have a great pastoral team. I don't know about Pastor Nathan, though. Sorry, I had to get you back a little bit. Uh, We have these beautiful facilities that God has blessed us with. Just rest and enjoy this very moment. So what's the problem with that? What's the issue? Well, the issue is if we place our hope in our present circumstance, guess what? It never lasts. It's always bound to change. If you place your hope in this beautiful building, who knows? It could be gone tomorrow. If you place your hope in the pastoral team, God forbid one of them fails you or disappoints you. You see, when we place our hope in our present circumstances, we actually root our hope in something that is fickle and constantly changing. And because of that, we're bound to lose our hope. And we see this in the text. These young people, they celebrate But in the next chapter, something happens. Something changes. And some people show up and they're really mad about the Israelites rebuilding the temple. The circumstances have changed. And in that moment when the Israelites face this resistance, they throw up their hands and they never complete the temple. They leave the foundations there laid bare. And it's because their hope was so attached to this present circumstance. Now, not only can we do this on a church level, but we can also do this on a personal level where we pray and God really comes through for us. He provides a new job. He gives us physical healing or he comes through for us in the pinch when we need finances to pay the bills that month or whatever, you fill in the blank. But as soon as whatever God provides for us begins to falter, we start to lose hope. Because our hope was never rooted in God. It was rooted in that present circumstance that he had provided. So, okay, okay, we've seen that our hope is not in the past and that our hope is not in our present circumstances. So maybe you're feeling pretty hopeless right now while I have some good news for you. There's one place that we can put our hope that I was witnessing that day in that bathroom trailer in Camp Arif, John, Kuwait. There's one place we can put our hope that no matter our present circumstances, we hold steadfast and we remain hope-filled. Even if our nation seems like it's falling apart and things are going down the tubes and it feels like your job is falling apart and you don't know what's going to happen next with your family, there's actually a place in the midst of all of that that you can place your hope and never lose it. And that place is our future promise in Christ Jesus. 
Now, the New Testament authors, they get this well. The Apostle Paul, I think he really got this idea because he spent most of his ministry in jail. And we're going to take a look in a moment at one of his prison epistles that he wrote to the church at Philippi. So I just want you to think about this. Paul has been robbed of his freedom. He's been robbed of his dignity. He's been robbed of his variety. And he sits there in a jail cell, not knowing what his immediate future holds. He knows he'll go to trial. And that trial could go two ways. He could be executed or he could be released. And in the midst of that, he writes these words in Philippians 3.20. He says this, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love what Paul says here. He says, even though I'm in prison, I still have hope because I know that I'm not home yet, but that Jesus Christ, my Savior, is coming back to bring me home with him. And Paul and the New Testament authors, this is something that they understood so clearly. In fact, the New Testament authors say that you and I, as Christians, we're just like those people of Judah living in exile. We live in exile here on earth. We are strangers. And in fact, we don't belong. Did you know that this earth is not your final destination. It is not your true home. And that one day, Jesus will return to bring you back with him. This is an incredible thought. The more we realize this, and the more we stay rooted in this future hope, the more we're filled with that hope that cannot be taken away. Now, when I first got back from my deployment, I'll have to be honest with you, uh, I had a really hard time reintegrating. I arrived back to my home country, the United States, but I didn't feel home. Then I came back to my hometown of Stamford, and I didn't feel home. I felt like a stranger in my own hometown and in my own country. And this really threw me for a while. In fact, I went into somewhat of a depression and a bout of hopelessness. But then I picked up the scriptures and I realized that God was actually giving me a gift. You see, he was giving me a gift because he was reminding me of the truth that all of us as Christians rest in. And that's that we are not home yet, my friends. We're not home. And in fact, our citizenship, our primary citizenship is not in the United States, but it's in heaven. And because of that, we await a Savior who will bring us home with him. And that's why whether you're 25 or 85, 
you can have hope for the future. Because God is returning. And when he does, he will make all things right. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye. And he will take away all sickness and all pain. And he will bring us home with him. But the beautiful thing about this hope is it doesn't begin when we die and pass to eternity. Eternity begins today. Because believe it or not, God the Father will not only view you as righteous before his final judgment one day, but he views you as righteous right now. So may we live into that hope for eternity and may we remember that our hope is not rooted in the past or even in our present circumstances, but our hope is rooted in that future promise that comes in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God.